and relieve ourselves. Relieve ourselves yeah. <laughs> so you go on one side and it'll go to the Gulf of Mexico, and I'll go on the other side and it'll go to the Pacific. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, guys, in Grime America tonight, uh, we've got a special episode. We've got Ed Nightingale in the studio. We've got Randall Carlson um, and a few people tagging along with them. We've got uh, some listeners, Bill, uh, David. Uh, they're going to pop on for a bit. But first, as always, Crackling Graham. Crackling Graham. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. It's nice to have you guys in studio because, of course, we're always doing this on Skype. So for once, we get to see each other yeah, face to face. Yeah. Kind of get to know what like Joe Rogan feels like because he always gets guys in studio, so feels good. Yeah. Feels good, and yeah, we've had you guys both uh, on the show before, and you guys have presented at Paradigm, and you're going to be there again this year, so we get to talk about that a little bit. And uh, but first, we can get into why you guys are actually in Calgary. It's not because of us, and it's not because of other good stuff that we have. It's because uh, you're on a little journey, on a little research trip, I think, right? And there's been actually some late, some news recently you put on your website, I think, that has to do with what you guys are looking at, what the um, the impacts from thousands of years ago, right? So, Oh, yeah. Well, so welcome to the show. You, thanks. Now, you guys are part of the reason. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I was going to say. A small part of the reason, yeah. but part of the... <laughs> yeah. No. yeah, hey, we're going to We could have flown into Vancouver or something I mean, and gone yeah. up, you know. I mean. America, boys. Yeah, thanks. It's good to have you. Well, hey, you look, you're putting yeah. us up. Yeah, yeah thanks a lot, guys. I got a, a great map in this afternoon. Great yeah, I've done that. Yeah, that's great. Well, that's <laughs> okay. the least we could do. Yeah. So you guys are journeying... Uh, we're going to make a loop across the Continental Divide up into the uh, plateau country, head probably up to Prince George, come back down through the Rocky Mountain Trench, zigzagging around, exploring a bunch of different sites. Um, nice. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Yeah. And uh, it's part of this larger framework of study that we've been doing up here in the Pacific Northwest for about the last 20 years now. Hmm. Because you know you guys live in the in the backyard of one of the great epic catastrophic events in the history of the earth hmm. right here where you guys live you know was part of the ice-free corridor at one point which was the zone between the two great ice sheets of the last ice age the cordilleran which was over the rocky mountains reached essentially from right here over to the pacific ocean and mantled all of the canadian rockies and the coastal mountains pretty much thousands of feet thick and um, then east of here, you had the Laurentide, the great ice sheet that reached from the northern United States up to the Arctic Circle and from about right here to the Atlantic Ocean. It was right in this zone where the two ice sheets met. Like zone, like as in Calgary? As or? in Calgary, wow. yes. Calgary sits right in the middle of what would have been called the ice-free corridor, huh. which has for years been considered the pathway by which Mankind first arrived into North America and South America, as well as a lot of the great megafauna. I certainly think that it was a corridor for temporary periods of time that did serve as a migratory pathway. I don't necessarily think that that is the first or the only way that humans came into, into the Western Hemisphere, because there's evidence now that people were in South America 13, 14,000 years ago and perhaps much longer. And the old version of People slowly migrating down from Alaska through the ice-free corridor into the lower United States, down through uh, Central America and into South America. The time frame for that is inconsistent with people already being down there 13 or 14,000 years ago 
and perhaps much longer than that. Right, right. However, it it certainly at one point did serve as a significant region of geography, being between these two great ice sheets. And probably for short periods of time, for maybe roughly, say, uh, fourteen or 15,000 years ago to about eighteen to 20,000 years ago, the two ice sheets may have coalesced into and, and blocked the corridor. And then around 15,000 years ago, the climate started warming a bit. Um, from the depths of the full glacial cold, the ice sheets began to shrink back a bit. And then it was, it was, that was when the, the corridor could have possibly opened up and served as a pathway, a migratory pathway. Then, at about 13,000 years ago, was when the hammer came down, the more orderly process of, of global um, amelioration from the Ice Age uh, was suddenly interrupted, and you apparently had enormous uh, meltwater events that poured down off the ice sheets and would have uh, followed this pathway right here through this region. And um, you guys have gone and visited the Big Rock, right? Yep, Okotoks. the Okotoks erratic. Yeah, the Okotoks erratic. So there you have an example it. of an 18,000-ton metaquartzite erratic quarried probably from the region of Mount Robeson up in uh, in Jasper Park area. Yeah, and that's Trans- where you guys are headed? Part, yeah, we're headed. That's on our loop. And then that would have been transported uh, via the uh, Athabasca River Valley out and being carried aboard an iceberg uh, that was then being carried in meltwater. That meltwater carried the iceberg down through the meltwater, through the ice-free corridor, along with probably thousands of other icebergs, many of which had similar rock uh, loaded onto them. And when those icebergs came to ground, they melted away and left their cargo sitting out on the edge of the prairie. And that's Okotoks is, is, is the biggest of those erratics, but there's hundreds of them. So it was like when the Boa River was just fucking crazy. Yeah, yeah. And that was so. Be, is that what so created the, the Boa River, like the the Boa River ravine kind of thing? I always picture yes. it like fell off the side and like sunk because it, it's just pretty much like st- carved out by that. Well, see, and and that's one of your key key indicators that if you're looking at a channel and the sides are sheer and vertical, that almost certainly means that it's a catastrophic. Erosional event that created that channel, not so much a slow because the slow erosion is slowly smoothing out that profile. You see, it's it's instead of sheer canyon walls with sharp edges, the slow erosion is rounding off those corners and slowly turning the sheer walled channels into V-shaped channels. And uh, <clears throat> you can see actually see all over the western United States and in the region where we're going. There's going to be many of these sheer walled channels like famous one that we've we've been through several times is canyon de Chey, uh down that straddles the arizona new mexico border actually it's in arizona but it's part of that that group of mountains there very sheer walled um the gorge of the little colorado river i mean the list goes on we've, we've probably looked at several dozen of these sheer walled uh channels or canyons um, and that's almost certainly going to be the result of catastrophic water flows. That's like Drumheller. Yeah, it's part of that, I'm, I'm sure, right? No, yeah. what, no, what's Drumheller? That's a region around here, it's, right? Uh, it's just east of here, and it's where the dinosaur park is, the <laughs> National Dinosaur Park. and mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just like a little hole, a little trench cut out of the prairies. Now, were those, are those Cretaceous dinosaurs, do you know? 
probably yeah, the, the big ones. Probably the late Mesozoic big ones. Yeah. Oh, the big. Okay, I think so. Hey, they're in the big. The, 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 the T Rex. They found a T Rex there. Yeah, so it's probably yeah, probably late Cretaceous dinosaurs. In any case, they're minimum of 65, 66 million year old rocks, right? Yeah. Probably older. I'm not sure the age of that particular uh, dinosaur deposit. But here's the interesting thing: it was those things were those Cretaceous rocks that care, that, that preserved those dinosaur bones were almost certainly buried under hundreds of feet of rock. And then when you had the great glacial meltdown, yeah, yeah. it stripped away the overlying layers and exposed the underlying layers that, that contained the dinosaur bones. Now I'm thinking that perhaps those dinosaur bones might be late, maybe even terminal Cretaceous, which would be very interesting because then visiting that site, you're basically seeing a juxtaposition of two great catastrophes in earth history. Right. The catastrophe that, took the dinosaurs off the global stage and the catastrophe that brought the ice age to an end right. 12, 13,000 years ago. Now you guys posted a, something recently on your website from physics.org, I think. And it was, uh, about that cataclysmic event of a certain age evidence for it. Yeah. 13,000 years ago. So this is becoming mainstream. Main, oh, it's sort slowly of, yeah. becoming it's, mainstream. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, oh, it's encountering a lot of objection and a lot of, um, resistance. Oh, it still is even oh, though there's, well, there's you know, I haven't heard this. as much lately because I think that every objection that's been raised by the critics has been resoundingly answered by those who, the, the, who've been proposing this, proposing this theory, Alan West and James Kennett and Richard Firestone and their colleagues that have been working on this now since, you know, the mid 2005, 2006. I think they first published in 2007. Um, and, to, and to summarize that, it's a, it's an actual evidence of a field of debris of... of, of to summarize it, it, it appears that the, the, the uh, late Wisconsin Ice Age, which was the last phase of the, of the great Wisconsin Ice Age, was abruptly terminated between eleven and 13,000 years ago. And it appears that the trigger could very well have been um, something from space, something from outer space encountering the Earth. An alien, if you will, but in this case, the alien was. Pro I'm inclined to believe it was the debris of a disintegrating comet, hmm. rather than an asteroid. But that's still to be determined. Hmm. It was a bolide, which we could use that term as the all-encompassing term for something from outer space. Okay, we were just talking about that. The terms we were like, what is an asteroid? A bolide or a meteor? Meteorite. An asteroid is different than a hemorrhoid. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> although it, people do suck. get the the two confused. <laughs> And wonder why is a hemorrhoid not actually called an asteroid? Yeah, yeah. but <laughs> I, and I don't know sense. the answer to that <laughs> at all. But in any case, um, it's a meteorite. So, so does it have to be small or a meteor wrong? <laughs> no, it doesn't have to be small. What, what was the uh, what was the uh, Tunguska 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 one? What, what was that called? The, the what was it? Was what it? Was, the Tunguska one was called the Tunguska event. No, but what was the, the was it a meteorite? Or? Well, it depends on who you ask. And in, in the, there, you know, they're still arguing: was it a comet or was it an asteroid? Oh, okay, and, so they don't even know. But here's the thing: if you look at these things, there's no clear dividing line between comets and asteroids. In fact, I think some estimates are that. 25 or 30 percent of the asteroids out there might be the devolatized nuclei of comets. So, you know, it's, it's hard to say. There's a, there's a continuum between. What's the difference? Is it just the size thing? No, no, no. It's not size. It's composition. Oh, An asteroid is going to be primarily, yeah. a, think of it matter. in simple terms as, as a rock, and a comet in simple terms as a snowball, although that's not an exact metaphor. It kind of gives you the idea. Yeah, right. 
Hmm. And and an asteroid asteroids can, are worse. It depends. It depends. See, asteroids. The thing about comets is that they move fast. Comets have velocity on their side, and a head-on collision with a comet would be really, really traumatic. Hmm. Um, or so would it. And again, it depends on size because comets. You know, a small comet might be a mile or two in diameter, but a big comet might be 50 miles or more, which would be about 80 kilometers. Hmm. Um, and if a comet of that size, if we encountered one of that size, we, we'd be, be a bad day in the neighborhood. We'd be Nibber. bending over sure. and kissing our asses yeah. goodbye for sure. I have to, speaking of that, I have to say one thing for uh, Stuart who left. He was here. He says, he just wants to say, he wants to die in the first wave. He wants to like be at the zero, ground zero. He wants to be at ground zero? Yeah. yeah. I told him I want to survive. Of the 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 catastrophe, yeah. When's that? I don't know. Well, any day. Don't look at me. (laughs) You're looking at me like, like you expect me to know? We should pick a day. (laughs) Listen, I've seen so many failed predictions, you know. No, yeah, we got to put a way out there, like 2065, like when we're old enough that we won't give a shit that we were wrong. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I'm older than you guys, and I would still give a shit if it's... True. Um, I think that it's there's looking at the tempo that's now emerging, which you know is not going to be accepted by all mainstream scientists. But there's a lot of evidence that events have happened a whole lot more frequently than yes, yes. <clears throat> than than previously estimated. And you got to bear in mind that a lot of the earlier estimates were based on crater counts. Like when you, you know, when an asteroid, a rocky asteroid or an iron asteroid strikes the surface of the earth, it leaves a, a, an impact scar that can hang around for millions of years and be looked at later. But for an object to strike the surface of the earth, it can't, it, it either, there's two factors, density and size. If you go down, you mentioned a Tunguska object, let's say it was about 150 feet in diameter, roughly. Roughly 150 feet in diameter. That's 100 to 150. It was moving fast, so it had a big kinetic punch to it, right? But it wasn't very big in the cosmic sense. But it was enough to completely obliterate any major metropolitan area on Earth. Completely. I mean, it it utterly devastated over 830 square miles of old-growth Taiga forest up in Siberia. We're talking three-foot-thick trees that are just snapped off like they were just fragile mac- matchsticks and you think 830 square miles is a lot um close to a couple of thousand square kilometers so if you go um if you go uh and look at any major city like atlanta's i use that as a down in the area where we live is a good example because if you look at the the perimeter freeway 285 that runs around atlanta the area within that is very close to 800 square miles. I've, I've calculated that out. So basically, that's a big, sprawling metropolitan area, and it's about the equivalent in, in force to a 15-megaton hydrogen bomb, mm. which would be pretty, pretty traumatic. But <clears throat> see, here's the thing about the Tunguska object. It blew up in the air. Yeah, it right. blew it up in the air. Crater, it did not right. leave a crater. Yeah. Once now, these trees rotted, there's not much yeah, evidence. A thousand years from now, there's going to be very little evidence there that anything like this had happened, right? Now, by contrast, probably one of the most famous craters, at least in in, in our, <clears throat> our neck of the woods, is, is Meteor Crater in Arizona. And it's three-fifths of a, it's a kilometer wide and 600 feet deep. It was formed by an 
an iron asteroid, and we know it was iron because we found pieces of it, you know, splayed out around the, uh, around the crater itself in the, in the debris apron. Well, it was an iron asteroid, right? Now, that iron asteroid was no bigger than the Tunguska object, but because of its increased density, it was able to fully and successfully penetrate the atmosphere <laughs> and strike the ground, leaving a big, obvious hole in the ground that we can look at now and go, oh, yeah, something really major happened there. And, you know, a thousand years from now, that hole will still be there, mm-hmm. whereas the evidence of Tunguska event mm-hmm. will be gone. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at the census based upon meteor counts of things that have fallen to Earth that have been picked up, and by looking at um, emission spectra of the objects going by us in space, it's it's pretty well determined that the population of the lower density objects, which would be in the the, the realm of comets to carbonaceous chondritic meteorites, which would include whatever the Tunguska object was, those objects are about 10 times more prevalent than the iron objects that leave the obvious holes in the ground for us to count. See, and, and that's something that I've, that's a fact that's been well established, but I just don't find that many people following the implications of that, which is that there could have been a whole lot more Tunguska-type object, events that we wouldn't know about. Um, but how, how big can one of those events get, like the size of that um, asteroid, before it's actually not going to explode in the air and it's going to hit the earth like, well again I mean? it, like again it depends on the composition the, the let's just say for the sake of uh, of a rough concept that the iron asteroid that struck arizona and left the media crater was about the same size as the tunguska object 100 yeah. to 150 feet in diameter yeah now for for a lower density object like a uh, like uh say in the middle of the range which would be the carbonaceous chondritic meteorites I'm thinking three to four hundred feet at that right, point. Right. Once it gets that big, it's going to successfully penetrate the atmosphere. But it's also a function of the angle that it comes in. If it comes in at a low angle, you know, it's got to pass through a lot more at- dense atmosphere before it hits the ground than if it's coming in at 90 degrees to the surface. So that's also a factor that has to be worked in. And the Tunguska object apparently did come in at a low angle. And I think that the that the object that encountered the Earth thirteen thousand years ago, the encounter took place at a at a fairly small angle, mm. so that the object would have come in from from say from this area, um, maybe at at twenty five to thirty degrees from the horizon, mm. and was probably a multiple fragmentation impact similar to what we saw in nineteen ninety four with the uh, Shoemaker Levy nine impact into Jupiter. When, when when 21 pieces plummeted into Jupiter in yeah. less than a week. Yeah. Was that by Calgary? There's impacts by here? Um, I don't think Calgary was in the direct line of an impact. I think Calgary was in the line of the secondary effects of the impacts because what the impacts would have done was several things simultaneously, which when we get back to like the Okotoks Big Rock, one of the difficulties, you know, the Okotoks is the biggest erratic in that whole train of, of erratics that reaches from where the Athabasca River comes out of the mountains all the way down into Montana. It's about a 500-mile train, right? The difficulty with explaining that is is that, you know, those the origin of those rocks is on the western side of the Continental Divide. And you guys are on the eastern side of the Continental Divide. You have to come up with a way of somehow transporting those rocks. And, and, and I could pull up a, um, a slide here on the... Um, and show you just so we can be looking at it, and I can uh, kind of tell you about what I'm what I'm talking about here because the the Okotoks 
doesn't look like a typical glacial erratic in that glacial erratics are usually ground and scratched and striated by the um, iceberg, by the glaciers themselves. And if we look at Okotoks, this is one view of it. Yeah. You'll notice it's got sharp edges and square corners. You see that? Mm-hmm. The corners aren't ground off like they would be if they were transported, if they were, it was the result of typical glacier transportation. If I look at this next slide, here you can see that, that it's actually, the original rock was in three pieces. And it's, and it's broken. But you see, this rock has been transported over 50 miles from its place of origin. But if you look at here, this, in this slide, you can see very clearly the, the square corners, the sharp edges, the, the, the two fractures that have broken the original single rock into three parts. And you can also see that the part on the right there and the middle part have sunk into what was at the time the uh, erratic was deposited was, was soft, still undoubtedly wet alluvium, which allowed the rocks to sink in, see? Um, but typical glacier transport, when you're looking at, you know, maybe a few feet or a meter or two per year, you're talking about a long period of time to get that rock from its source up by Mount Robeson and dump it out south of half an hour south of, of Calgary, see? And without the, the, the separate pieces you know, being separated further to where they would not end up emplaced together like you see them here. Well, the only way you can really successfully explain how you could transport this rock as you see it here is through iceberg rafting. Right. You know, now, now we have to carry that idea to its next implication, which is that what is the size of the iceberg necessary to carry an 18,000 ton raft uh, uh, cargo like this? And the answer is that it's probably going to be the size of, of a tanker ship. Okay, let's go to the next step. Well, then what kind of water flow is going to be necessary to float an iceberg the size of a tanker ship? And you're talking about a pretty significant flood of water. What about, what about uh, impact? Uh, like, was it dislodged due to an impact? Well, I think that clearly the erratics train, and this idea is not original to me. It was actually first proposed by um, a geologist, a Canadian geologist from this area. Um, C. Warren Hunt back in the uh, mid-70s. He published several articles in the Canadian Journal of Petroleum Geology, which I'm sure all of you guys read that regularly. Yes, I yeah. do. Yes. Okay, so you've probably seen that article then. In, uh, but in there, he two articles where he proposed that, that um, he, I think he called it the Athabasca Flood, where he was pointing out that what, what other geologists seemed to be overlooking was what I just described, that these erratics were transported aboard icebergs and then you have the problem of simultaneously creating quarrying the rock creating the icebergs and creating the flood water to float the icebergs and his his um idea back then was seismic shaking that was the consequence of a very close passage of a cosmic object but as i recall he did not actually explicitly invoke a um an actual impact but i think i did have an extensive phone conversation with him back in i think it was 98 or 99 before the first time i came out here and i think he's passed away in this interim because he was quite elderly when i talked to him and i think at that point he had actually now was thinking an actual impact um because an impact could could accomplish all of those things i mean it delivers a, a an enormous uh kinetic punch that could could cause the fracturing and the avalanching 
of these mountain shoulders on the onto side, the yeah. ice, yeah. fracture the ice, melt the ice, also, transport it, and, and ultimately deposit it out on the Alberta prairie. So are you, are you able to actually find the locations of some of this in Mount Robson when you go there, do you think? I don't know, because I haven't been there yet. And that's one of the things we're going to look at. I, I would be surprised without much more detailed, in-depth study of just a cursory reconnaissance uh, mission would would be able to determine precisely where the rock came from. But I would think that enough studies of the rock and the exposure ages of the rock, I mean, you'd probably have to get into doing, you know, cosmogenic dating of the rock surfaces, because if you have a landslide and a rock falls off a cliff face, it's now going to be subject to cosmic ray bombardment. And that cosmic ray bombardment leaves an imprint that can actually be dated. Hmm. And it would require, I think, some pretty skilled technical um, efforts to, to match, determine, that up. To match yeah. it up. Yeah. Mm. And Expensive, I'm not, too, probably. And what? Expensive, too, probably. And expensive, too, yeah. But mm. if you guys, you know, can raise... <laughs> You know, somebody <laughs> maybe not maybe not that expensive i don't know i've never priced cosmogenic ray dating no not not any recent prices george do you have any idea okay well we got a man here we can put on it he's a man <laughs> he's a man too i need a deal <laughs> so anyways that's one of the things we're going to be investigating but then the fact that you know we've been looking at these floods south of here, where the geologists now admit that, yeah, there were these huge catastrophic floods. The, the Missoula floods is the, usually the name given to them, and the byproduct of that, those floods, is the channel scabland of, of eastern Washington. And, um, you know, we have crisscrossed that area. Mm. I've lost count how many times, you mm. know, back and forth, looking at all the vagaries and the... the um, you know, the different aspects of, of that. And I think I've seen enough now myself to know that, that the ultimate source of the floodwaters is not Lake Missoula in western Montana, but that instead Lake Missoula in western Montana was a temporary holding pond for waters emanating from the Canadian Cordillera coming down the route of the Rocky Mountain Trench. Mm. And I can actually pull that up here, and I'll show you an interesting... Um, an interesting topo map of the Rocky Mountain Trench. We're in the Rocky Mountain Trench. No, we're not. No, you are not in the Rocky Mountain Trench here. <laughs> well, you might be right now. I don't know. Yeah, you. Yeah, you <laughs> yeah spiritual. I was going to the Rocky Mountain <laughs> You might be in the Rocky Mountain Trench. Are we going one. to the Rocky Mountain Trench tomorrow? Um, we will actually cross the Rocky Mountain Trench on the way to Revelstoke. Will we stop? Well, if you would like, <laughs> Aaron, we can certainly stop. It's listen. It's a it's a interesting. It might be a great stop to place a great place to stop and relieve ourselves. Graham doesn't do that. He uses a jug. Who does? <laughs> he makes fun of me because occasionally I just pee in a jug when I'm driving. So. Well, hey, you got to do what you got to do, and um, you just love it, eh? Never, but yeah, we we, we will old. be crossing the Rocky Mountain Trench tomorrow, and this file um, somehow got closed down. Um, Brad, I think we need your technical expertise here to get get the um, Cordilleran back up. Okay, we got that. Now we go back. There we go. There we go. Um, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm going to show you guys the uh, uh, a topographic map of the Rocky Mountain Trench. It's a very interesting geological feature. Have you ever looked at it or looked at? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, spent, yeah. spent some time. There's a few trenches. Through, uh, There's a few trenches through along through. there, right? Yeah. We lose that damn thing again. Well, let's pull it out and put it back in. That's what she said. Uh, I need a button. My my soundboard's not working. <laughs> Why not? What happened? Um, died. Really? What do you mean the battery? Don't tell me it's a battery. Yeah. Oh, okay, that slam. Scroll down. Yeah. Okay. That's weak. We'll scroll down. And there, uh, Twice in one day. Let's go to this one right here. Really? What, the weakness or the yeah. battery? What what else was it? You didn't see the email today? What email? All right, awesome. gentlemen. You later. If you will cast your attention up okay, here, sorry. you can see this thing coming right down here. Oh, wow. Yeah, quite it's quite obvious. One, right? Yeah. Yeah. To say the least. It's a, it's a giant downfold in the crust. Where is the Athabasca Glacier on that right now? The Athabasca Glacier would be... Somewhere in here along the Athabasca River. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. This is the Athabasca, yeah. and there's Mount Robeson, which was the area which was the source of the erratics train. It's strewn all down along here, which was where the ice-free corridor was through here. The so we're going to loop around this way up to Prince George and then come down the Rocky Mountain Trench. Nice. And then we'll probably uh, follow the path. It's, I What I think the evidence shows is that there was an enormous current that came down the Rocky Mountain Trench, right. continued down this way, and also split off on the Athabasca River, quarrying the erratics train from these the mountains in the area of Mount Robeson here. Carried it out here, and then right out here, where the water discharged off the Cordilleran ice sheet here, over here was the Laurentide ice sheet, so what happened was the water was deflected south, hmm. carrying its cargo of thousands of giant icebergs that many of which were loaded with these metaquartzite boulders so your feeling is that it was actually excavated from from the, the flow and not from an no, impact or no i don't because the glaciers or? pre-existed i mean the glaciers filled the rocky mountain trench right right what they did do though was when the glaciers melted away they left an enormous thick layer of silty gravelly bouldery material th uh, hundreds and in some places thousands of feet thick wow. on the floor of the trench in some of the areas um like some of the lakes um in the cordilleran region what are what you call the fjord lakes like mount shuswap did i say it right shuswap yeah. yeah um bonaparte um Kamloops, yeah okanagan yeah these lakes are extremely deep um they're seven, eight hundred, a thousand feet deep, the lakes themselves. And then you get to the bottom of the lake, but that's sediment. And the sediment can be a thousand feet right, thick. Right. So if you were to take the water out in the, um, in the sediment, you have a, a carved bedrock trough that in some cases is two couple of miles wide and, and as deep as the Grand Canyon. Enough to hide the Ogopogo. Enough to hide right. the Ogopogo, yes. Oh, and by the way, that's one of the things. If we get a, get some extra time, we're going to go ahead and try to... Bill can camp, capture. camp on the shore and try and get the Ogopogo. <laughs> well, I've heard that they actually make pretty good eating. I've never yeah. found one. I yeah. fish there. 
And I was actually, I caught a fish and I was a little nervous when I went to get it out of the water. You could, you could uh, keep your eyes open for Sasquatch too. There's some Sasquatch country around there as well. Well, so. what I would like to do is to stage a battle between Bigfoot and Ogopogo. <laughs> I think that would be a big hit. We have a picture of Bigfoot riding, riding the Ogopogo, actually. Picture of Darren riding in the no, Ogopogo? Bigfoot, Bigfoot riding the Ogopogo. Oh, really? Yeah. There's a picture of me shooting a Bigfoot. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And there's a picture of me saving Bigfoot. You we guys. have an ongoing thing here about whether to shoot him or not. Okay, I understand now. I'm seeing how sacrilegious you guys are. I don't say, I say don't shoot him. Oh, you say no, don't shoot yeah, him. No, Darren, can't. Darren. I'm the one like, jumping in front of Sasquatch taking the bullet. Okay. And Darren is the one pulling the trigger? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I see that relation. I can see the <laughs> that is how dynamic this. It's, it's worth uh, Graham's. I'll take that risk. I'm willing to risk Graham to take down a Bigfoot. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I'd want that karma. So, so while we're off topic a bit here, I do have a, a question for you from one of our listeners. If you oh, don't mind okay. me asking, are the um, listeners able to? They're not able to see no. any of this. That's too bad. So this is actually from, from Brent There Kirk. actually might be a way, if you send me those pictures when I release the podcast, I might be able to do it. I'll just give you too. the file before I leave, yeah, before then, we part company. I'll just give you guys the file. Yeah, we could do yeah. them on YouTube and actually yeah. do it. Okay, and good. I could also do it um, in, in the podcast, too, I think. I can oh, really? make it so that the episode art changes at no, certain really? timestamps. Yeah, that'd be pretty good. Wow. So even on your phone, you can see what, what you're talking about. Okay. So this is from uh, the, so the bunch of people might be looking at their phone in a couple of weeks, totally disappointed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, you can always put up a picture of Ed or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this is uh, this is from Brent Curry, who was almost here tonight, but he couldn't make it. So I figured I, I want to ask you ask you this question, Randall. So he says, so this is my question. Graham Hancock has a theory that psychedelics may have taught early men how to live or have imparted wisdom to us that allowed us to develop beyond just being a simple primate. In Grimerica's first talk with Randall, he mentioned the part in Genesis when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and their eyes were opened. Opened, meaning they gained knowledge. Could the forbidden fruit have been psychedelic drugs? Well, I think just the question implies the answer, you know. Certainly. I mean, if we look at candidates, I can't think of a, a more suitable candidate than that. And, you know, here's what's interesting. All of this stuff and this research that I've been doing since basically 1969. Woodstock. I, I did, well, I didn't make it to Woodstock. I left for Woodstock. I left Minneapolis with a buddy of mine, and we got as far as middle of Wisconsin, and it, our car broke down. So we just hitchhiked back home, and I've regretted that ever since. Sure. One of the few regrets I have in life. Not not making it there? Yeah, well, it should have just kept hitchhiking. and, But, you know, nobody had any idea. Yeah, nobody right. had any idea yeah. what, what it was going to turn into. And I had just seen The Grateful Dead like two or three times, you know, by that time. And Anyways, I used to go to um, a... Um, used to go to rock concerts that were just south of Minneapolis at a place called Eden Prairie airport and it was on these bluffs of what was now the minnesota river valley but what used to be called river warren of course i think they hadn't figured out back then that it was river warren but river warren was a couple of thousand times bigger than the modern day minnesota river that flows as this little a little trickle down in the bottom of this huge deep canyon 
right? This huge, or not can you know, a, a valley that's about three to five miles wide, and the banks are two to three hundred feet high. So I, there was a break in the music, and I wandered over to the edge of the bluff, and I looked down into this valley, and I saw on the other side from where I was standing a matching set of bluffs. And then down in the valley below me, I saw the modern-day Minnesota River and noticed that it was in a channel, and there were bluffs on both sides of it, and it was like a miniature version of this big channel. And at that point, I kind of had this if you want to call it a vision, if you will, that this whole big channel was once completely filled with water. And of course, at that point, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything about geology. I didn't know anything about the, the, the fact that there might have been this massive meltdown. I had never even envisioned such a thing, thought about it. But standing here in that bluff, I just had this very distinct impression. And what's interesting about that is that, of course, I was in an altered state of consciousness when I was looking at that and having this vision of this whole channel being filled with with water and and really at that point it's so it was so striking to me that idea that immediately it didn't i didn't follow it but a number of years later i came back uh, the next summer actually was my first trip out here into this area not here but south of here into 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 montana idaho and washington and i traveled down the columbia gorge which if you ever Travel yeah. down the Columbia Gorge, up or yeah, down, I did. I drew and you know how incredibly spectacular incredible. it is. Well, a, a lot of what you're looking there at the, in the gorge is you come down, you're going to see these huge terrace complexes on both sides, and you're going to see major uh, delta fans splayed out from the mouths of tributary rivers. Well, again, in '70, I had never studied geology; I didn't know anything about that. But by going down, I just came away from that a couple of traverses up and down the the um, Columbia Gorge that that there was this story there that somehow the landscape had preserved some kind of story and I had no clue what it meant. All I knew was that these forms were so spectacular and striking and dramatic that at some point, maybe three, four, five years later, these, these impressions that I got from these experiences gestated in the back of my mind to where, you know, at some point I read a number of things, you know, on, Oh, you know, more fringe science stuff, you know, Velikovsky and Atlantis stuff and all of that. But, but always there was these things that I'd seen, you know, in, in these experiences. And so then I think it was in the late seventies, I was talking about this first time I ever started giving any public talks or classes on this. And I, I, and I, I brought this up and there was a fellow in one of the classes who he, I don't, he wasn't a professional geologist, but he had, he was a degree in, in geology. and I was talking about in the Mississippi River, also up there just south of Minneapolis, there are huge bluffs and and terraces on the rivers and so forth. And I was describing how, you know, the Minnesota River appeared to have been carrying enormous amounts of water in the Mississippi and the Columbia. And then he said, well, no, 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 no. He, He interrupted me and said, you know, you're looking at stuff that was created over millions of years. You know, and I said, no, I don't think so. I think it was something catastrophic. And we had a disagreement and you know, it was an amicable disagreement, but we dis- disagreed about that. And what that did was it, it's, it really inspired me to really begin to study geology formally. So I, you know, got so into it that every outing and traveling that I did from that point on, I was 
looking at the earth. I was looking at the rocks and the landscape and the rivers and the lakes and wondering about origins and what was the story encoded in the landscape. And, you know, um, the upshot of it, of course, was that in our disagreement, I was right. And he was basically just invoking the the, the paradigm of one grain of sand and one drop of water at a time explains everything. See, there's a reason why he didn't make it to Woodstock. This is what I think. Ah. I don't think this this path would have happened if I had gone to Woodstock. Yeah. <laughs> Another kind of rock guy. I could, well, it could have happened. I could have. <laughs> you could have started a music career. Yeah. Well, I did have a short music career for yeah. three years, yeah. and then it derailed completely. There you go. But now look insanity look prevailed. Music career derailed. Although I was the one sane one in the band. You must have been a bass player then, right? No, I was, the, I was the percussionist. Uh, so he's a bass player. Stable. No, in this case, it was the oud player. Oops. <laughs> the, oud, the oud player. So we'll, we'll get to you too at at some point here. But we oh, also right. uh, we also have Dave and Thon here. He's one of our listeners, and he drove all the way up from Lethbridge. So Hello. I want to give you the opportunity to, to chime Definitely. in. Definitely. I was hearing what he was saying earlier, and it was oh. really interesting. But did we answer the question? Yeah. We did. Yeah. Adam and Eve... Okay, eight, yeah, eight, I totally eight, think eight, that, eight, and eight, I totally think that we can use psychedelics to, to come to a much more intimate understanding and awareness of our own past on this planet. Yeah. Let me throw that in. I think yeah. it could be a tremendous tool because geologists go out there and you look at all these different clues. You know, you look at stratigraphy and you look at lithology and you look at... Um, you know, you look at palynology, the, the pollens that are preserved, and you take all of these pieces and try to put them together to get a picture of what actually happened, right? Well, maybe we could, subvert, we could actually just kind of bypass a lot of that. Not that I'm saying we should do, do without it, but I'm convinced that we could use the agents of the earth to come to a much more intimate understanding of the processes that shape the earth itself. Yeah. Because, in fact, I think the Earth wants us to know this story. I think that's why we humans with our 1,200 cubic centimeter brains, or are we closer to 1,600? I think we're closer to 1,600. I'm not too sure, but I I entirely agree with you on that. It's almost as if we're, excuse me, like a... I've heard it explained like we're a defense mechanism for the planet because as much as we we suffer detrimentally from some of these cosmic impacts, but certainly the Earth might not like it too much. I would assume, you know. You know, that's right, Dave, and I I would say that, and I would say that what happens is that in the early stages of the Earth in its formation and the introduction introduction of biological life to Earth, these cosmic processes were absolutely mandatory they had to happen the comets probably do the hydrosphere of this planet is almost certainly the result of thousands and thousands and thousands of comet impacts in the early history of the earth the introduction of biological material of 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 you know precursors to organic life probably introduced by comets i think the 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 the, um arguments in favor of an exobiological origin are are gaining momentum every year right okay but at some at some point the process has to stop. Or what it does is it keeps resetting the global uh, ecological clock back to zero. And then uh, what we saw happen 13, 12, or 13,000 years ago was a major, we saw a decapitation of the food chain as a consequence of these events. You know, half, half the great megafauna species that existed on the earth at that time did not survive through these events. 
Well, one thing that I've always found interesting is the fact that it seems like for every one of these impacts, the one that wiped out the dinosaurs, uh, the one that wiped out half of the mega mammals, at the end of the day, as much as we suffer, we come out smelling a little better at the end of things. We don't have to worry. I mean, we wouldn't have evolved at this point had the dinosaurs been around, and things would be a lot different. I mean, when we go camping, you have to worry about cougars and bears well what if we had to worry about woolly mammoths and saber-toothed tigers like just thirteen thousand years ago those events have made the conditions in north america more favorable for intelligent life to spread and excuse me proliferate again potentially to become a better defense mechanism now that we've hit a nice equilibrium for the planet and we don't need more water we don't need more introduction of any more elements from outer space unless potentially we bring them in ourselves yes when you get up in the morning your one of your major concerns of the day is that you're you're not too worried about getting consumed by Arctodus simus, the great cave bear, or you know the great the great short faced bear, or or dire wolves, or the Pleistocene lion, or the list goes on and on and on. There was just enormous predators that lived on the planet at the end of the last ice age. One of the things that did happen as a result of that, and there's interesting evidence now showing that there was probably a major depopulation event that associated with that. But in the aftermath of all of these catastrophes, once things settled out, bear in mind when this ice is melting, sea level is raising, right? And sea level is raising, it's drowning hundreds of thousands of square miles of, of coastal line around the, around the continents of the planet, right? But at the same time, Thousands, hundreds of thousands of square miles, even millions of square miles are being released from this icy prison that they've been in for thousands of years. So you've got this major real estate reorganization that's going on on the planet. Humans probably, in many cases, did be cultural groups did become extinct, such as the Clovis, which suddenly disappeared in the aftermath of these 13,000 year ago events and then there's about a thousand year hiatus when we and then we see the Folsom culture show up um, but it's likely that all over the planet what you basically had was a major dispersal dispersal event in the wake of this but ironically after the cessation of the ice age and the rising of the sea levels once sea levels got back to where they are close to now the planet entered this period of time that, that the that the Paleoclimatologists have referred to as the climatic optimum or the hypsothermal. And it was um, this period of maybe three, possibly 4,000 years where humans were worshiping the earth in the form of this pregnant earth goddess, uh, documented extensively by Maria Gimbutas, who did, uh, who showed that during this period of time there was no evidence of strife, conflict, or warfare. And when, amongst, and when was this? This was between like six thousand and nine or ten thousand years ago. It doesn't have any precisely defined dates because this period would have it 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 you know different places around the planet transformed at different rates and and so on. So, I you know the last. Uh, Probably the, one of the last remnants of this goddess-worshipping culture might have been like an example would be Crete, which maybe went down, you know, maybe 2,500 to 3,000 years ago, um, somewhere in that area. Um, but yeah, what you saw is that between the period of about 5,000 and 6,000 years, you see this transition from the worshipping of the earth in the form of this pregnant, um, corpulent 
um, fertile earth goddess into worshiping wrathful sky deities. Well, and what they call them, the Venus figurines, don't they? With yeah, the, yeah. Those yeah. Large, yeah. Yes. And the, they always find that they may have been more complex at one time, but they're just basically torsos now. And and it, after I'd heard you talk about that before and some other people discuss it, I mean, it, it seems entirely rational. After a cataclysm, yeah. when we were given the charge to replenish the earth, yes. there was no need. I mean, there was... If, well, it was Thomas Hobbes, I believe, that said all conflict stems out of fear and diffidence, you know, a fear and an uncertainty of the power of your foe. Well, if you're not fighting over resources, you have no reason to be afraid. You have no reason to worry about if you're the other is stronger than you if you will want if there is an abundance you do not have any need to take exactly or be taken from exactly so there is that but then as resources whether humanity grew or conditions changed and organization became necessary then yeah you see the man or the agriculture energy take over well yeah. this this period which you could call which Buddhists called the civilization of the goddess basically was a period where the arts flourished uh there was music um epic poetry had a lot of roots in this period of time um and you have to look it, it's like in the wake of any catastrophe you have what 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 a, a ecologist or a biologist would refer to as a refugium a place where for whatever reason because of the luck of the draw or whatever life manages to survive intact and it's from these refugia that basically life reaches out and recolonizes the devastated areas and you know brad and i visited last october we we paid i paid my first visit to um mount st helens to be able to study the um you know the the recovery in the in the aftermath where you had about 300 square miles utterly obliterated and turned into a lunar landscape and now 34 35 years later it's it's, it's probably well on its way right? to recovery yeah. right yeah. It, nature actually in the long-term scheme of things nature has remarkable recuperative abilities but it's basically taken i think human beings ten thousand years to essentially re-establish ourselves on this planet as a global force and for for roughly three to four thousand years this would have been the era of, of be fruitful and multiply because if, if the human population has been diminished dramatically, and in fact what you would most likely have is small groups of survivors who basically had no knowledge of what's going on in the rest of the world, who don't know under necessarily that we might be the only ones. Because as far as they know mm. and can perceive, their whole world has been eradicated, right? So, so what you were saying, David, about... It makes sense, and then when when there's no conflict for resources, and you're a small group, tribal group, and you maybe encounter other people, maybe it's more of a cause for celebration than it is for ah, fear. Right. Yeah, well, yeah. And also too, I I wonder if there isn't some amount of um, I don't know a, a trauma. You know, when when people go through a traumatic experience together, they ban when there's a crisis. For the most part, we band together, we pull together, and yeah. a crisis on that level, I wonder, you know, if it would affect us on a cellular level that deeply enough where, you know, the theory that we pass our fears on, that as soon as you see big teeth and front-facing eyes, I mean, my children grew up in the city, they never have encountered a wild animal, but they had fears of the stereotypical so maybe if that we encountered such a cataclysm that was so great that it sunk into our genes that hey we need a, not just a crisis moment but a crisis several generations of working that out that where we need to be together we need to be peaceable we have 
no time for conflict and maybe a big wake-up call because if we we've we heard rogan talk about it after 9 11 how friendly everyone was for a short period of time yeah. if we had a cosmic event now that wiped out a city i think we would see the world pull together and wake up to you know the real threats and the real dangers and it would and that would ha echo beyond just one generation or two i yeah. think i think in the context of what we're talking about here like groups of of you know, isolated social groups that would have uh, emerged after a cataclysm like that are going to probably know instinctively that there's a much greater advantage to cooperation than co competition. But then you've got three or four thousand years of lots of lovemaking and baby making, and the population grows. And because of the warm climate, and and we're talking about a climate that's warmer than now. I want to, I want to, I want that to be clear to anybody yeah, who's listening that the evidence is overwhelming. That this period of the the, the hypsothermal or climatic optimum, global temperatures not not uniformly everywhere because there was a lot of local and regional variations, but overall, the global temperature was warmer and sea levels may have been actually four, five, six feet higher than now. Um, but again, this is all you know. Not everybody doesn't agree on it, but the I think that the weight of evidence overwhelmingly shows a warmer world than now. And when was that? This would have been that period between six thousand and nine thousand years okay, ago. Okay, okay. Well, and yeah. that's you had Dr. Freeman on, and he had discussed how the um, natives had that built the circle, the calendars, and the yeah. circles that he you know believes showed the cardinal directions and. Uh, line up with the solstices he had made the comment that i forget around the same time six thousand seven thousand years that they were living in the mountains it was too hot and the palliser triangle was practically a desert and then when things cooled off is when they finally came out of the mountains and started to spread out to, to the rest of the prairies yeah and the paleoclimatologists the guys who study ancient climate as opposed to you know what's going on now have have basically shown that there was and again, it varied where you were on the earth, but between like 5,500 and 6,500 years ago, there was a global cooling. They refer to it as the neoglaciation. And there were many places where the where you had had three or 4,000 years of relatively stable, warm climate, and now suddenly the climate has changed and it's cooled off. And one of the consequences of this, and, and during this period of warmth of course you've got an enormous expansion of the human population so now with the the cooling comes growing season contracts the uh elevation at which you can successfully do subsistence farming comes down hundreds of feet i mean goes up hundreds of comes down hundreds of feet and people that were living in settled communities are suddenly displaced and disrupted by the by the um the changes that are taking place and this is when we actually begin to see fortifications appearing and mm. the weaponry of war and conflict. This is when we see the, the conflict shows up in the uh, archaeological record right in the, in the wake of this onset of the neoglaciation. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. It's weird. Maybe I'm taking it a little too far out there, but in a sort of scale invariance, maybe I'm doing damage to that term, but... In the same way that the planet, you know, might have these cycles of interglacial, glacial, interglacial, mm -hmm. it, it would make sense that we, we growing up on this planet under the influence of the sun, we would have similar cycles of abundance and peace and order and, you know, control mm -hmm. back to when we're eventually, you know, maybe we're getting to this point now where we're kind of swinging back to a little more, I don't know. 
openness to what's going on and peacefulness and pulling back from that sort of male energy of like not man energy but like that male energy of control and decision and influence well, yeah i mean we're we, we're in a position now where we have much more potential of, of balance between the two but it, but you see i think it's a mistake to say that what happened then was just the result of you know patriarchy and the 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 desire of men to to dominate um because it, it's really it's much more complicated than that I, in some cases i think it came down to survival of social groups and you know you go and until somebody's been in a position like that you don't know what you're capable of but you know i really think that what happens is you have major displacement of of human populations and communities between that period of 5000 6000 years ago which to in the astral astrological context or, or model would have been the age of taurus as the equinox moved into into the constellation of taurus something interesting happened just like when it moved into the constellation of leo 6000 years earlier than that is when we had this major transition out of the ice age right hmm. well you know you we, we can't really judge i don't think until we know what it would be like to see your whole family and community perhaps wiped out how, what lengths would you go to to preserve your family, your yeah. community, yeah. or your life, yeah. or your life? Yeah. What, what root does the story of Kronos? What maybe literal root does the story of Kronos eating his children stem from? I mean, in that sense, that the darkness of mankind, when we are driven to it for the need to continue on, there is nothing that would be unacceptable for the survival of the, the will to go on. Like, yeah, I, I look at it that we were whole, the whole human species was in effect the victim of these global changes that took place, mm. and you, to to try to blame it and say point your finger and say oh it was you know men patriarchy and I think that that really takes us off from the fact that we were all humans on this planet were being profoundly affected by these changes that we had no control over at the time yeah and sorry I don't mean to miss I definitely am not blaming men it's more of that right. that concept that we've. We didn't have we didn't have the room for the freedom to be, have feelings and to play around and to just be relaxed. It, it came down, and it, you're right. I think it, for those those who could do what needed to get done were the ones that survived. But it it took it, it took that the brutality that is sort of a I don't mean specifically exclusive to men, but a mm -hmm. male energy to to take control, to dominate, to partition, to build barracks, to build weapons. And I don't mean that that's uh, a, a bad thing at all, but just that that was that natural swing to the other end, that this is what needed to happen, just as what needed to happen was abundance and fertility previously. Now yeah. we're to a point where that's a necessary outcropping. And, and now we're in a position where we've created a a global an interconnected global civilization and we're sitting here having this conversation yeah right and we're looking and have have access to more information and insight about our own past i mean just compare what we have access to now from a generation or two generations ago i like to make the point that you know my grandfather when he was born my grandfather when he was born the main mode of transportation on earth was horseback so, I mean, and here we are, look what we're doing here, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and this is in a century, you know, since the scientific revolution, you know, we're looking at two or three centuries. Now, when you look and, and consider the fact that modern humans, we've been around for a couple of hundred thousand years anyway, well, who, who's going to make some definitive final judgment as to what may have transpired or what we may have accomplished in the past? It's been totally eradicated and lost. 
It's easy to do that when you when you have this uniformitarian gradualistic model of earth change. But when you finally understand that that we live on this extraordinarily dynamic planet that has undergone enormous and amazing and profound convulsions repeatedly just since we humans have been here, you know, yeah, it's not it's not something, you know, that only the tin foil hat boys are going to speculate about. I mean, it really right. becomes plausible that there could have been all kinds of things going on that have been utterly lost yeah. and and essentially erased except for mythology and epic tales and and symbolism and things like that. And I think I that, think, that, think too that that's where this the the Giza part comes in on this the the where they are leaving the, this knowledge and of these events and the, the cycles which these events occur, that's, that's kind of where my work comes in to play. Because what you've, if I'm understanding what you've done, is you've established a sort of chronometer, yeah, if yes. you will. Yeah. And it's linked into the great year cycle, the processional cycle. And without really knowing the details of your work, it seems that that totally complements what I've been thinking for years and a, yes. quite a number of other researchers that, yes, that, that there are... That this great year model is somehow used to encapsulate a lot of this information about the tempo of these great changes that have taken place, and you know when you begin to look at the the the, the symbolism of the, the the what I call the cosmic cross, which I think is the the basis of the of all of the the cross symbolism of of ancient times, including Christianity. Because now you realize what the cross cosmic cross was was the same thing, whether it was you know. Um, Native American people, whether it was the Mayans, whether it was the pre-Christians, the, the Mithraists, the cross, or, or the Celts, this cross represented the cosmic cross, which was the solstitial line and the equinoctial line, yes. which in its turning marks out the tempo right. of the cosmic change that is governing the terrestrial change. <clears throat> and they knew right. this. And this is why it played such an important role in so many of the, 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 the symbologies that we've inherited from the ancient world. And there's a tempo yeah. there that, you know, you found it, and David, you're probably aware of how the numbers that are associated with this processional cycle are the numbers we find recurring over and over again in, in the sacred geometry, yes. in the ancient, in the sacred architecture. They built these numbers into the, into the plans, uh, the, in the elevations of the, of the ancient sacred structures. All over the world, they built these same numbers or or variants right, or, right. or or expressed them in different architectural styles, still encoding these same same numbers. numbers. Right. And it turns right. out that those numbers have a basis in in real world astronomy yes. and real world celestial motion. And why were they so obsessed and and fixated on celestial motion, building structures that could be serve as observatories for celestial motion? Well, I, and I think there's multiple reasons, but but one of the primary reasons would be that um, to to mark this trajectory that we're on that that shows uh, how these cycles happen. Now they're not all there's these events happen can be random in, in nature too that can throw things in there that don't necessarily line up with 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 certain dates. But there are these cyclical. You know, events right like 5200 years ago we talked about essentially you know the uh, the uh, beginning of the mayan calendar 3114 bc listen there 5200 years ago there's multiple places around the earth that have carbonaceous layers yes which would suggest a period of enormous wildfires and the, i'm not aware yet of particularly cosmic impact markers yet 
but I, I will, I'm pretty confident they're going to show yeah. up when, when oh. people start looking. Well, yeah, at 4,300 also, same thing. Yeah. And there are cosmic impact markers showing up then. And I think, again, what we're, we're seeing is that the evidence is showing that um, the interactions between Earth and the cosmos have occurred with a much greater frequency than anybody had imagined even a few decades ago. Yes. And now we're kind of, in a way, confronted with this new knowledge. Um, and in a sense, to me, it's like almost like a wake-up call. It's like, okay, listen, if you people want to keep going with this thing you've got going on down there, yeah. you need to start looking at the bigger picture and start acting like grown-ups down there mm-hmm. and quit all that squabbling that's and ridiculous. Right. It's right. all just distracting us yeah. from... Yeah. Yes. And that's one of the things that I, I don't know, I find, I shouldn't say disheartening because change comes slowly. I guess when I was younger, I expected it to come quicker, but I, I talked to some people, like I was mentioning earlier, friends um, that I know, and it, it doesn't seem to resonate quite as much with them. And I know that it's so easy to get stuck in, you know, the day to day and the grind and who's on TV. But to me, these are fundamental things, not just the the revelation that we could have been more organized before than we thought that the human history doesn't begin with cuneiform writing and right. and the larger implications of that that about this being about the survival of our species the survival of our well-being and that we have the knowledge we have the manpower we have the resource we just seem to lack the focus and it's unfortunate because i think you know all those friends that i have if hollywood or whoever was you know making if they were making that attractive instead of global warming, like you look how much they have pushed global warming and the questionable, I mean, it, I've said to my friends and the, again, this is, I get met with the same sort of look, but I, after listening to you and what they've discussed on no agenda, they talk about it quite a lot, Adam Curry and, and John C. Dvorak that, you know, if it's these questionable, whether it's really taking place, how much impact we have. You know, you keep hearing things like carbon, carbon impact, and carbon takes up what is one-tenth of one percent of our atmosphere, and that's supposed to have some incredible influence. But if I've said to friends that if global warming, I hope global warming is real. I hope that man actually can influence the environment that much because if we don't push it over the line, we want things to be warm. Mankind has always done better when it's warm. Yes. And this being the longest interglacial period on record, why wouldn't we want to stretch this out again at at infinitum? Why would we not want to have that ability? So if, I mean, I don't believe we do have that control over the environment. I think like Carlin said, we might mess it up for us, but I mean, she's going to recover. She's (laughs) met with worse than anything we can do, but you know, it's, yeah, I, I, distractions and and money and profit. yeah, and if and, we could and you know that's that's what you got to look at this stuff. You you quit, don't even engage in some of the arguments. Sometimes it's it's just distracting us from the stuff, the kind of work that Randall's doing, and and getting to to, to the meat of this stuff and saying, hey, folks. You know, we're we're arguing about this little stuff over here, and we got this going on. You yeah. better start paying attention to this because this looks cyclical in nature. Yeah, and let's so let's look at the cyclical nature of it, and let's you know, and that too to me would only make sense again. Like the seasons, I know our seasons on this planet are because of the axial tilt, but it would make complete sense that this that we would as we go, everything is so tied and so interwoven. There's nothing in the universe that doesn't touch itself. So it 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 makes complete sense that we would be going through seasons of 
a fall and a you know a, a cosmic season right right seasons yes right where, you know and and that like we discussed earlier there, how do you encode how do you pass that information on if if you can't pass in it the on stars. through stone then you've got to go to the stars because the that's asterisms the, the constellations that that's how they did it and, yes that's, that's that's exactly what i was going to try to show you here tonight uh, but yes that's exactly what they did they're mapping the trajectory and the alignments of our movement through space mm-hmm. And they're saying, hey, at certain points in this motion, the shit hits the fan. Mm. And it, this this calendar that we're looking at ties into exactly these, these uh, you know, geological disruptions. Yeah. And uh, maybe not all of them. Have, you know, there's obviously uh, uh, just erratic uh, episodes, different just... Uh, wanders or whatever that don't yes. work in a cycle that can really uh, muddy up the waters they can muddy up the water and, and yes. get the you know but but there's major ones in there that we need to look at and they're at alignments i mean we talked about the the great year here well what, what i've found here in this great year if you align that great year to end in 2012 which is a galactic alignment now if you go on stellarium or wherever your star p- program is there and view from the the, the sphinx and look west and or east i mean and 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 see the alignments that happen on that date of 2012 first of all sunrise um from the sphinx you're looking at the sun with the the galaxy right behind it well if you were at make the point it did this is happening at winter solstice yes yes december uh uh december 21st and it's, and it's actually happening yes in the years leading up to and leading out of 2012 yes yes this isn't just like uh you know one day and everything right, well, comes to an end and all the that motion it, of this point is 50 arc seconds per year yeah, so that's yeah. going to be relatively right and bear in mind this is all in a moving frame here so we're just kind of capturing this 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 m- motion but we had talked earlier before about how things aren't exactly perfect right. that they vary and and it shows in the music in the uh uh the adjusting the tuning of the music to 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 work and and the, the adjustment of the measurements in in mm-hmm. that's this uh adjustment that needs to be added into these uh numbers to for the, the yeah, galactic alignment there's and, there's the ideal the platonic ideal right, if you want to call right. it that and then there's the real world right and it's just like as a as a builder and craftsman you know this i know this that when you go to to build a project, you know, and I've got the blueprints in front of me. The blueprints are an idealized version of the finished yes. project, right? Yes. And as we talked about, the discrep- there's always going to be a discrepancy between what the architect shows on the blueprints and the final structure that you build. The, the amount of discrepancy is really the measure of the degree of skill and craftsmanship exactly. Exactly. Of, of the builder, if you will, right? <clears throat> or... What happens is once the structure's done, now the vagaries of time begin to go to work on it. And so when you're looking at it in the aftermath down the road, it's going to have a greater discrepancy than the day it was finished. Right. But So what you've got is the blueprint is the idealized version, and then the structure, the actual structure is the, is the, the real world. Well, in Freemasonry, the, the, I think the, one of the fundamental... Uh, premises of how that whole system works is this idea of the great architect of the universe, also sometimes referred to as the grand geometrician, who laid out the universe and all of its workings according to this template of geometry. 
once you understand the template in its idealized form, you can then look at the actual structure, say, of like our own solar system, and, and realize that it's very, very close, but it's not exact. So, you know, your, your, your reductionist skeptic would look at that and use that as the rationale for dismissing the whole thing. Right. Right. right? The fact that Jupiter's orbit is, is maybe a week a off long. from being the ideal number right. of 10,800 days. Right. But there is very close to this uh, amazing synchrony between uh, all of these the celestial objects, a celestial symphony, if you will. Right. I suspect that somehow within that matrix is also the tempo for the delivery of of cosmic material to the inner solar system where it can become earth crossing yeah. if you will yeah and and i think to get to the ultimate source of that tempo we have to go to the galactic level yes. because as we were talking about i think it's it's discontinuities on the galactic level that basically dislodge the comets disrupt the stability of the Oort cloud and the 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 Primarily the Oort cloud. The Oort cloud is this huge shell of billions, hundreds of billions of comets that reaches out, you know, several light years away from our sun. And within that, you have a concentration of comets into the plane of the ecliptic, which is called the Kuiper disk. Um, and what happens is, I think that on the galactic comets in the Oort cloud level are um, being disrupted by or or sent into disequilibrium by events on a galactic scale. Yeah, I think Perhaps right, nearby right. supernovas, perhaps, you know, in the Paul Lavalette concept of, of galactic core explosions. But then you have the Kuiper disk, which reaches almost into the orbit of Neptune. And at that point, I think the, the outer, big outer planets become the dominant influence. And the... Um, was that you that showed? Yeah, that you showed the the how the moon slingshotted that that um, asteroid back into space. Yeah. Well, alignments of the outer planets and encounters between, first of all, Uranus and Neptune can do that same phenomenon. They can yeah. either accelerate the orbit of a comet because the Kuiper disk and the Oort cloud are they're they're orbiting, they're 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 rotating, revolving is the proper proper term, revolving around the sun very slowly. Uranus and Neptune, let's say they conjunct, so the gravity fields combine. A cometary object just in advance of them, that co that gravity influence is going to have a retarding or braking effect. If it's in front of them, it's going to accelerate. If it accelerates it, just like you showed me on that video, it sends it flying out. If it decelerates it, it's it drops in a shell and comes within the gravitational sphere of the planets. Which happens that the four giant outer planets are exactly spaced right. That if you changed the spacing or you changed the masses of them, they could not effectively transfer comets from the inner edge of the Kuiper disk to the inner solar system as they do now. In fact, some researchers have called it a, a, a celestial bucket brigade. You see, and so there again, we get to this fact that our solar system happens to almost be designed to deliver these packages of of fundamental materials to the inner solar system where they would then have the chance of encountering a planet that happens to be just the requisite dis distance from the sun with the requisite mass not too great a mass not too less a mass you know to deliver the water and then you have to have a moon because without a moon you don't have an intertidal zone without without an intertidal zone you are not going to be able to get more primitive marine life up to become air-breathing land life 
without the moon, you don't have the intertidal zone, uh, you see. Well, and when I first heard you discuss that, what I thought of was, again, like these just larger, the same patterns being played out on, on a larger scale in that, you know, you're going, if uh, panspermia exists, that, that it's almost like it's nudging every once in a while these seeds are being sort of falling towards the sun and and sometimes they may hit infertile ground and how many every years the cycle continues again and more seeds are cast and now this time it happens to be fertile ground maybe it's mars and maybe it doesn't take hold maybe something doesn't take place but eventually again this season's enough cycles take place where like you say it hits that goldilocks it hits that sweet spot and again now it's shrinking it down a little smaller maybe that's where we are with it's enough sweet spots to get eventually to this point where maybe we can keep this little rock safe i always used to say we need to like expand after listening to Bill Hicks, I said, we need to get off this rock. we got to expand. we got to get off this rock. And I think that is of primary importance. But also, we, we really do have to start paying attention to what's going right. on uh, as, a, as, a, as a globe. And that's why, like you say, cosmic civilization, global civilization, whatever. We, we really do have to focus on the fact that if we do things right here, we've got lots of abundance. We don't need to fight. And there's way bigger problems out there that are, yeah. that don't care about our religion, that don't care about our language barriers, that don't care about our belief systems. The, the, the next half kilometer object out there that's already in an orbit that's going to bring it into direct impact with Earth, and they're, they're out there, more than one, we just haven't found them yet, is going to, yeah, completely um, change our priorities. Mm -hmm. But... I, I, what you're saying, I totally think that it is the life's genetic imperative to become cosmic. Right, right. I think the seeds were planted on this this earth. The earth serves as the as the matrix for the development of higher life forms that now can return life to the cosmos from whence it came, but in a highly transmuted form, a highly transformed uh yeah, with with brains and foresight and and self awareness. And well, and that our <laughs> our migration didn't just uh, end with the the trek out of Africa. That there's always and I you know I'm getting too far out of here, which I have a tendency to do. Go for it, man. I think that Go this is it. It, this is almost seems to be so written into our nature that I would argue that somewhere else this has taken place all over. That it almost just seems to be written into the fabric of the universe. That it's almost as if. You know, we're composed of stardust, but we're questioning the nature of what is existence. It seems to be where we are. What, what does it mean to exist? And wasn't it the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where they built the giant computer, you know, and they asked it the question, the meaning of life? And I kind of wonder if that's not what the universe is doing, that the universe has sort of spawned us, these little intellectual beings, that on some scale it's trying to resolve its own existence. Because the universe is very much, in a way, a living thing. It's still growing. It's still expanding. I mean, it... It's, uh, I don't know, when you look at how so many of the numbers, uh, the little bits of um, sacred geometry that I've started to wander into, there seems to be such a fundamental tie to the numbers of it uh, across all of the scales. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, there absolutely is. And I mean, even like, if you look at the, how vast the universe is, and how little matter there is, that we know of at least, and how that's a perfect reflection of the small scale when you get in so close we don't even touch we don't touch ourselves there's so little matter contained within ourselves it's just that constant everything seems to be a constant pattern repeating itself over and over and whether it's emotion or thought or music or architecture that seems to be a nice fundamental groundwork to everything 
Um, which sort of, I wouldn't mind if we can just go down this path a little bit with the stuff we were discussing about the moon earlier. Mm -hmm. I was going to get into that. I wanted to, you know, people want to hear you talk about the moon, I think as well. Oh, they do. <laughs> well, apparently you're going to give us a book at some point. <laughs> well, yeah, you have to wait and buy the book. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I did bring up the moon in the, 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 in the, the fundamental pre, role the that the moon yeah. plays. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot more to it than that. I mean, it's the moon is a rather strange object in our night sky, and and I don't think there's an easy explanation for it. But yeah, I You're mean, right that, 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 it, yeah, I mean, the moon is basically not behaving itself as it should it within the laws there, of Newtonian right. physics. Shouldn't, shouldn't. You know, it's um. <clears throat> well, watching that video that I showed you, that little clip hmm. uh, where it showed that the meteor spinning around yeah. a few times, it. It, it, that was, like I said, to me, the wake-up call that, oh, wow, the moon serves, besides tidal, the moon right. actually serves some other functions, and then it can help eject yeah. some of these predators that are coming to wipe us out. Yes, it can do that. We just saw that. There was a perfect, that was one of the best things I've seen in, 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 a, in, in a while. That was great. My job here is done. I'm out. <laughs> can, you, can you explain why, why it doesn't behave uh, within the laws of Newtonian physics? Well, <clears throat> the first clue, the first clue is the fact that no matter what time of year, what time of month, or what time of day you go out and observe the moon, yeah. you're always going to see the same face. So then I ask the question to people who've never thought about this for one second before, what does that mean? And then they, the most common response I get is, oh, well, the moon isn't rotating. Is that the correct response? Is that the correct answer? No, because if it was not rotating, we would see one face, say, at one point, two weeks later, after it had circled halfway around the Earth, we'd be looking at the opposite face, if it was not rotating. Right. But it is, in fact, in fact, I should have posed this question to you, Graham. To see if um, you gave the standard response, but, uh, but I would have I would have passed. Oh, you would have passed. <laughs> okay. My wife, my wife's a teacher, and when she was in university and doing her practicum, she had to teach a science course, and we were going over this, and it it I was helping her because she asked me, and it really it was the first time I was ashamed to admit how old I was that I really had contemplated. Why is it that we always see the same side of the moon? And I, I literally had to take a flashlight and set it on the table and take a cup that was the earth and take another cup was the moon and had to rotate the earth and rotate the moon at the same time to yeah. fully clue into how you know it works. And that just the balance is so perfect there. To put it simply, what we would say is that the rotation of the moon on its axis is precisely the same as its revolution about the earth. What has been right. referred to as one-to-one -one spin orbit right. coupling. One-to-one -one spin orbit coupling. Now, this is rare for moons, isn't it? Uh, well, because we only see one moon, we only have really one example. It's not, but can when we you tell, get into the uh, small, we like, the other when we look at, at, the, at Phobos and Deimos yeah. and Mars, we see the same thing. Uh. But they're much smaller objects, and they, they have not, they don't have sufficient mass to aggregate to sphericality and a, and a radial and homogeneous distribution of mass about the center of gravity. Because if they did that, you see, then the um, 
Earth's gravity field has no ability to lock into, or should I turn around, the, the moon then would not lock into Earth's gravity field. And see, that that's basically what's happened, is that the moon is locked into Earth's gravity field, and which tells us that the moon's internal mass is not strictly radially symmetrical, nor is it homogeneous. Because if it was, it would its mass would act as a single point, and Earth's gravity field would not have the ability to lock it in to that phased relationship, that one-to-one spin-orbit coupling. What that means is basically there's two moments of inertia in the moon that are distributed towards the surface of the moon rather than as center. And the, and the best way I could show that is I could demonstrate it here in the studio if David will pick up that, that pen there. I want you to, and maybe we could do a... You can you can write on the on the table too if you want. Oh, okay. Yeah. If you just hold this in one one spot in the, right in the middle, okay. Now you hold that as tight as you can, and prevent me. I'm gonna I'm gonna set the mic down for a second, and what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna you're holding it in one point, and I'm gonna take it, and you try to keep it from from turning. See how easy that was? Yeah. For me to turn it, right? I thought I was strong. Yeah. See, there there this is. But now, what would, so, so here you've got this moment of inertia coinciding with the center of gravity. Now hold it in two points, like this. Now hold, keep me from rotating it. Yeah, yeah. You see what's happening there? That's a clue. It, it's a clue that the internal structure of the moon is not radially symmetrical. It's distributed outside of the center of mass. Hmm. Now, here's the, th- the other. Now, why is that bizarre? Well, it's bizarre because if we look at what we know about the moon, it's a low-density object. It's just slightly over half the density, the mean density of Earth, which, oh, I'm thinking is about 5.6 compared to, like, water is is one, um, one gram per cubic centimeter. I think the average density of the Earth is about 5.6 grams per cubic centimeter. And that's average density because the crust of the Earth is lower than that and the core of the Earth is higher than that. The core of the Earth is, you know, heavy, dense, most comparable to like an extremely dense iron core, right? The moon's overall density, though, is very low, you see. So the moon should actually be much more plastic than the Earth, which means that over enough period of time and the moon's overall mass is enough that its molecular structure should have aggregated into the geometric form that provides the least resistance or the least um, energy to maintain per volume, which is a sphere. Because it, like just a cube would require much more energy to maintain that shape than a sphere of the same mass, right? So the internal structure of the, and see if, if, if things are, uh, uh, are low density enough and they're large enough they're all going to eventually um, settle out to the shape of a sphere once they do that and the mass becomes radially distributed about the center of gravity then it's just like there's one moment of inertia and at that point the moon would be completely free to uh, rotate about any axis independent of the earth's gravity field but it hasn't done that over eons of time the moon has not settled out to the to the geometry of minimum energy potential which would be sp- spherical and the fact that it that it has its this 
this line locked into the surface of the earth is demonstrating that to us. Well, then what does that in turn clue us into about the internal structure of the moon? Then when you couple that with the fact that the moon seems to be highly resistant to even the most violent and large impacts, which the Maria, which, you know, if you look at the moon, there's a, a, a asymmetric distribution of surface features on the moon. Like if you look at the backside of the moon, there's only one small Maria. But the, 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 the near side there, the earth side of the moon, you know, half of the moon is taken up by these great gray splotches, which are the basaltic Maria, which are like the lava outflows from these gigantic impacts. Well, we were talking earlier about the scaling ratio between <clears throat> width and depth of impact craters. And typically you might go uh, that the depth is going to be one-tenth the width. So if you have a crater like on Earth, which of equivalent density to, uh, to an, an object of equivalent density to the Earth, and it's 30 miles wide, its depth is going to be about 3 miles. If it's 10 miles wide, its depth is going to be about a mile, right? Now, of course, there's a lot of variation on that depending on the density of the target rock, the density of the impacting object, the velocity, the angle of approach. All of those are going to be variables that, that change that. But just as a rough, you know, order of magnitude concept here. Well, when you go to, to talk about the moon, what you see is that the scaling ratios apply up to about 30, 40 miles in diameter, and they keep getting deeper consistently as the craters get wider. But then once they get beyond about 30, 40 miles, they continue to get wider. They don't get deeper. <laughs> so that some of the big craters, um, if, if you were to actually stand, place an astronaut at the center of those craters that have, you know, might have mountain rims that are a mile high, two miles high, place at the center, they wouldn't even see the rim because it would be below the horizon because that curvature of the moon's outer surface is still there. It's like somehow the moon has this ability to resist these great impacts that could have, should have just, you know, excavated, you know, if you look at some Mare Imbrium or, or, or some of these big Mare, you should have had, you know, dozens of miles deep, but and they're that, not. And that goes back to the density not being in the, in the center? It or? goes back, well, it goes back to the thing that suggests that the moon is, is anomalously rigid in its structure, and it's also anomalously strong in its outer layers. And another clue that it's anomalously strong in its outer layers was the discovery of mass cons in the early days of uh, moon exploration. You know what a mass con is? Short for mass concentration. And Graham is getting on the computer there. You're looking up mass cons? I was just typing in a note. But oh, I, typing I can in a look note. it up if you want. Well, mass cons, I can tell you what they are. You can look them up, but they're, they're short for mass concentrations. Mass concentrations are large density somethings that are just below the surface of the moon. And how they discovered them was in the first lunar orbiters that were sent around. As they're going along, they would pass over the mass cons, and they would actually be deflected uh, downward in their right. pathway. Like that there's some large hidden objects of extraordinary density just below the surface of the moon, mm. right? Now, again, this is this is anomalous because... Just like in, the, in, in, regular, in the models of regular planetary formation, the densest material migrates to the center, where it all consolidates and then becomes radially symmetrical. Whereas in the moon, it's just like, imagine that you took a lead pellet and put it in a, in a, on a, uh, you know, a bowl full of pudding. It's going to sit there for a minute, but it's going to eventually sink to the bottom, isn't it? Right? Well, just, you know, like on the Earth, if you took something of, of, of a mean density, a huge object of mean density, uh, 7 or 8 grams or more per cubic centimeter, 
10, 12 grams per cubic centimeter, it's going to sink right into the earth, right? Uh, some of the, the material of the degenerate star Sirius B, let's say, I believe would weigh up to 50 tons per cubic inch, something along those lines. If you had something of that density and set it on the earth, it would sink right immediately to the core. But over time, you know, something of, of, of extreme density is going to sink to the core of the earth. And it should likewise sink to the core of the moon, but it hasn't. Which, again, suggests that, that the outer structure of the moon is extremely rigid because it's supporting these mascons. And how long have the mascons been there? It's been proposed that maybe the mascons are remnants of large iron asteroids that struck the moon. But the problem is, is that, the, that the energy released in an impact of that scale would, would, would basically utterly demolish and even volatilize the the impacting object and it wouldn't leave so these mascons are mysterious you know what they are nobody knows for sure but it provides evidence that the that the outer sir the outer structure of the moon is extremely strong well and that's one thing i in our discussion earlier i thought might be useful to clarify is i couldn't i was using the term dense that the when discussing the craters and how they would stop going as deep and would start to just widen out i said well it's denser in the middle but no the, you corrected me it's not that it's denser it's just that it's it's rigid there something doesn't need to be dense to be strong it's so what's at the core of the moon that's taking extra impact is not denser it's just more rigid than well i think the models of the moon now suggest that there is a very dense small very anomalously small core but then what you have is an anomalously small core and you have this outer rigid the structure, the shell, of the shell if you will, <laughs> and then what's in between That's that? Question. And there I think that what we're looking at, perhaps, is um, that there is some type of architecture in there that adds rid additional rigidity to that outer shell. And the, the, in our discussion earlier, the, the, the architecture that I invoked was that of a beehive. Honeycomb, I was thinking honeycomb. the same thing. A wow. honeycomb. Wow. Yeah, a honeycomb. You were thinking that. See, so it's already... See, we already have that. Just you proved, Graham, that we already have this knowledge in our genes. Yeah, yeah. See, right? Well, and, and, and bees and honeycombs are, are, are a very big part of a lot of esoteric traditions. So you, you, you look at any of the old Masonic lodges from the 17 and 1800s, and some of these old Masonic carpets and stuff with all the, the, the whole panoply of Masonic symbolism, you'll always see uh, a honeycomb the bees flying around it, and usually juxtaposed just above it or in the immediate vicinity of it, is the lunar crescent. And then also associated with that, you also find another very potent symbol, the anchor. See? And you think about the anchor, the shape of the anchor. See, well, we can say, for one thing, like the moon has been often referred to as the ship of the night, right? And when you look at the crescent of the moon, it's very suggestive of a ship-like form, Right? And it's anchored to the earth by this gravitational tether, you see. And the, sh the, the, the image of the anchor is very interesting because you look at it, it's the cross, and then it's the crescent. You see, it's the cross rising up out of the crescent. And the cross, as I've said before, I think is a symbol of, of basically this whole concept of death and resurrection. And it was incorporated into the early symbolism of Christianity, but pre-existed Christianity for a long time, the, the symbolism of the cross. And then, in the astronomical sense, that refers us to the great cosmic cross, which is the equinoctial line and the solstitial line at right angles to it, that's rotating at this 
26,000-year great year cycle that perhaps is the thing that at least is the clock that gives us the tempo of when we can expect these right. these nonlinearities, these points of discontinuity within the system. Well, and it, to me, it would make sense in the way that I felt a lot of the marking of the solstice. I, I have speculated just, you know, random average Joe speculating that it was very important to people to mark that, to know when the sun was coming, to know when we were returning to light, just to know that things were in alignment, that things were okay, the cycle was okay, and to mark that. And so these larger cycles, if we gain recognition of them, it wouldn't be, it makes complete sense to me that we would want to try and mark down and, oh, and mark, you know, note these larger cycles in whatever way possible. And it, it's so unfortunate that our ways are so limited that we can't just send ourselves an email to the future or a sticky <laughs> note and just have it stay there for 15,000 years just well, in case. the but. sticky notes wouldn't have lasted as long as the pyramids. <laughs> uh, so that's probably why they didn't do that. But, you know, all this stuff is is in the record and it's a lot of it is right at giza these these uh markers you know that they put in are are alignments that happen within the trajectory and motion of our sun sirius system pleiades system and what i found and and i, I put in the article uh leo uh orion relationship is that these these movements are based out of the M42 nebula in Orion, Orion Sword, Orion Sword, the uh, spiral of Barnard's loop is is actually uh, that uh, geometry demonstrated in the light of the plasma loop of Barnard's loop that this is moving in this, and it's related to the the galactic center alignment, and uh, it's it's clearly in the in the record there. But it's interesting too, especially. We, we got talking a little bit about that that point um, before talking about the Mayan hearthstones. Um, the whole Mayan tradition is marked around these three stars in Orion, and with the center of the fire, the hearth fire, the smoke is uh, the M forty two nebula, and they talk about how uh, that. I mean, they, their whole tradition is built around, and that's where this this spiral. Is emanating from that they've put at Giza. Perhaps you know the 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 um, when you said that I'm I'm thinking of supernovas now, and and that what we were talking about earlier that perhaps that there is a rhythm to consider the, this the supernova events. Consider this. I mean, uh, the M42 nebula is a star birthing nebula. Okay. okay, and if these we know that these stars are being ejected out of that nebula. Well, as with any other kind of pattern in life and cycles, there are, uh, you know, cyclical nature to the birthing of these stars. So what, what I've discovered here in this uh, uh, the map at Giza there is showing that these are spirals, that the Sirius system and uh, the Pleiades and the sun are actually moving away from that point of origin in a spiral mm-hmm. motion, in a spiral arm of the Orion, or the uh, the Orion arm in the spiral galaxy, and it, it really totally makes sense. And uh, m- many of the cultures point to that th- those specific uh, star groups and and the Orion Nebula, 
and it's really interesting to see how this plays out because the 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 way they wrote it in the uh, asterisms and how it works along with the template, there's really not an argument to it. It's so beautifully drawn and 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 mapped out that you know this needs to be looked at, and that's what I'm hoping on this trip with Randall with you that you know we can get together and look at this and see how it fits right right intimately with mm-hmm. your uh, observations geologically. Well, you know that's what's happening here. I mean, yeah. there's there's a lot of people around have been doing this kind of work for years now. You know, I started it, like I said, 1969. I got obsessed, and I've been obsessed pretty much ever since. But, you know, a lot of this is just coming together now. People have been, you know, in isolation, sometimes, you know, within mainstream academia, oftentimes not. Um, but, you know, these pieces are coming together, and, and what's emerging is a is a very interesting and awesome picture. Yes, of, it is. Of you know the, our situation here it's yeah. it's a lot more amazing than the ramifications and implications are just you know amazing uh, david didn't you mention the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy too is it a coincidence that he's talking about 42 the answer to the universe <laughs> life and everything maybe he's found it <laughs> well <in the> nebula <laughs> well i mean that's what they all talk about right that's where where the pharaohs would return to to orion right well you know it, it makes sense here just to look at it is if it's a star birthing nebula and we can see a spiral emanating from that which is barnard's loop it, it's in a, it's a, a plasma um gas uh ejection yeah uh, and when we do a, a a long exposure film you can see that but what's really amazing then too then whoever did this at giza obviously had the ability and understanding of how they could see that that spiral and and know it. Well, you'll have to show me this. Yeah, yeah, I would that, really love to. It's it's. Uh, that reminds me, isn't it the uh, the Gnostic belief of the origins of the Earth was was a burst from the center of the galaxy that was created? Sophia was responsible. I'll have oh. to read up on my Gnostic. I I forget one of the podcasts I listened to. It they all start to blend together and they, yeah. Well, this will be so this will internet, be when was, when you see how this fits together and you see how many loose ends this ties up and explains without the need. I mean, okay, let's uh, we'll get into the procession discussion here a little bit. Now, now, um, traditionally, it's been explained as a wobble of right. of the Earth. But there's a major problem with that, and everybody knows it and kind of just, well, what's the, the alternative? And uh, the reason that, that that's not the case is because when you measure that wobble against anything in our solar system, it's not measurable. That's a major problem. We, sh- we should be, if we're just wobbling ourselves, we should easily, well, I shouldn't say easily, it's only been recently with the higher uh, technical tools to measure that close they can't measure that um, that wobble within a solar system they also can't measure it really well I, I shouldn't say they can't measure it but they it's very uh, small measure is serious and the Pleiades also don't process okay well that's it's just a logical thought here that uh, uh, that well the, these three are are tied together and if they're if they're all moving in a spiral motion away from each other, this would give you the effect. Our view on Earth would look like a wobble, mm-hmm. but it's not. It's 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 actually almost picture a 
um, um, the the uh, the rolling a wheel along a spiral. So the wheel is rolling along a spiral, and that's what's giving us this view that looks like a wobble, but but it's it's really not. Mm-hmm. And and I want to try to get this in front of people who have the the tools to really analyze this. And it sounds know. like we need a three dimensional model. Yes, to really visualize this yeah, I, so. I do have some you know two-dimensional stuff but to mm-hmm. look at it it's actually pretty clear how this this could make sense well it's interesting that you bring up pleiades in this in Sirius because in my work i've encountered both of them on several different occasions pleiades in particular go back we were talking earlier about the tunguska event right <clears throat> well do you know the date that it occurred on you know the date 1908 that was the year. What was the d- <laughs> that was what was the date? What day did that o- October? No, <laughs> August. It was August. No, I had a one in twelve. Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> June thirtieth. Okay. Okay. June thirtieth. Okay. Now, do you know what time of day it happened? Do you guys out there know what time of day? What about seven fourteen <laughs> early in the morning? Thank you, Darian. Darren. Darian, I like it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think I'm starting to lose it a little bit here. Yeah, but, uh, I'm, I'm going on no sleep myself. Yeah. We'll the, 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 guys, yeah. The listeners have to understand, we've been on the road for a couple of days with very little sleep here, and <laughs> we're, we're, we're pushing the, the envelope here. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, about 7.14 in the morning. And, and many of the eyewitnesses described it as if it was being disgorged from the sun. Or that it was being spun off of the sun because it came from the direction of the sun early in the morning from the southeast, um, traveling towards the northwest. So the sun was rising June 30th relative to that area of Siberia. It came directly from the direction of the sun. So we have two things to go on. We know the direction that it came from and we know the time of the year. Well, June 30th is the peak of the summertime Taurid meteor shower, oh, yes. right? And we would be crossing that as the stream, which is going outside the orbit of Jupiter, coming back inside, uh, think of an ellipse, where the two foci of the ellipse are the sun and Jupiter. And you've got this stream rotating around, and, and then within that, you've got the Earth's orbit that crosses that stream twice each year. Hmm. Okay, so it crosses the stream as it's coming from the sun, coming and going away from the sun, and it crosses the stream again as the material is coming back towards the sun. Now, when, when, you, when it crosses the stream, when the stuff is coming away from the sun, you would have to look towards the sun to see it coming. And that's why they didn't see it, you see. Now, wait till around the end of October and the beginning of November, and the Earth is now crossing the stream again, but now it's coming in from Jupiter. Right, and you, if you were to look at the stream upstream at that point, every meteor stream has what's called the radiant point in space, which is the point in space where the meteor stream appears to be emerging or emanating out of the night sky. The radiant, R A D I A N T, radiant. Okay, so 
it's almost like you're looking up at a, a tunnel with with perspective. You everybody's walked down railroad tracks, and you know how the parallel railroad tracks seem to converge in the distance. Picture, but now you're in a tunnel. It looks like it converges in a distance, and in that tunnel, you have all these meteor meteoritic pieces flying down this tunnel, and as we cross it. We can look up that tunnel and we see that stuff flying towards us. You know, in a few days, we'll have the peak of the Perseid meteor shower. Well, I said the Taurid meteor shower, the Perseid meteor shower. You have the Leonids. You have the Scorpids. You have the Geminids. Well, all of those meteor showers are named after the constellations from which they appear to it's emanate. Radiate out of that. So when we talk about the Taurid meteor shower, what constellation are we talking about? Taurus. Taurus. Taurus, yes. Now, here's what's interesting. If you, what forms in the constellation, you should know this, Ed. If in the constellation of Taurus, what forms the shoulder of the bull? The plate. plate. Well, the plate, well, the, yeah, he's looking at me. Well, yes. What's really interesting, if, if you draw, if, if that, in the asterism, okay, if you, if you do a certain view there of that, the, the, <laughs> the line that creates the asterism that points out the Pleiades, if you follow that line straight across, it points directly to Sirius. No. You're going to have to show me yes. that, too. And, and not only that, when you do that, it actually crosses and, and intersects the star Regulus in the... In the uh, oh, Ryan? Well, and see, the, the significance view. of that There's two is views going on here. Regulus... Is my rising sign, my rising right. star. Yeah. There you go. Right under the horizon. Go. There you go. Right under well, the That's a really critical thing that was marking the, that was marked, it marks the ecliptic. Yeah. It's, it yeah, rides the, the ecliptic. ecliptic. Exactly. Yes, marks the ecliptic. That's what's so, important about a Regulus and, and Leo. That's why they use that well, asterism. Okay. And now we've got two of the great meteor streams of history are the Taurids and the Leonids. Right. 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 And that's what they're marking in this cycle. Uh, uh, it's it's so really amazing when you go out on um, and this is why actually the Taurids have been referred to as the Halloween meteors because they peak right on the on Halloween the, the day up to and the day and and <clears throat> very interesting work done and I've I've written about this some I think I've got several articles somewhere about this but I'm gonna and I've done several presentations on the origin of the Day of the Dead which was a universal tradition from all over the world that typically was celebrated uh, commensurate with our Halloween. And, and um, let's see, who was the, um, Robert Grant Halliburton, I believe, was the, 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 the researcher back in the 1920s who first did, wrote, did, started doing research into, into the origins of the Day of the Dead and discovered that it was universal all around the planet hmm. and that it was very similar, celebrated, uh, and, and so our Halloween is is basically consistent with this universally celebrated Day of the Dead, the Feast of the Ancestors, which in his research disclosed the idea that that the origin of it, ha he saw it as in biblical terms, that it went back um, to, to Noah's Flood, which is interesting because if you look at Noah's Flood in the description of there, you see that in the, in the, uh, uh, the, second, in the um, 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the seventeenth day of the month, and then if you figure that the the old the the Hebrew sacred calendar was based upon the fall equinox, you can then look at Scorpio as being tra traditionally the astrological sign of death, and then this coming 
very close to um you know that period which would have been um the 17th day of the month would have been very close to our modern day halloween and which of course would mean the torrid meteor shower again Yes, and bringing us the peak of the Torrid meteor shower. Wow, right. And, and Halliburton's idea was that the reason for the universality of it was that people all over the world witnessed the same thing, which is the, the influx of the Torrid meteor shower, which in older times would have been much, much more active than it is now. And there is a group of British astronomers and neocatastrophists, uh, Victor Klub and William Napier and a, and a few others, um, that have been researching the tarred meteor shower for decades now and are convinced that not only was there enormous mass of material in the tarred shower in ancient times which could have encountered the earth there probably still is that we haven't discovered right. yet now right. now is this a is a is it a phenomenon because people are seeing just this these things fly through the sky or is it because some of them would actually enter our atmosphere and hit earth like both both yeah both. Mm. exactly and you see so what they would have been do what would they would have experienced was this celestial this inc incredible celestial light show at the same time there are these extreme terrestrial consequences wow right yeah interesting and you can certainly see how that would shape people hey th look there was a whole new religion that was spawned in the wake of the tunguska event yeah and they yeah. They, they felt that this was the, the 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 visitation of the fire god agdi to earth to punish mankind for his sinner for his sins um and so there was a whole new religion spawned up there in, yeah. in Siberia based around that event. And and when, when Leonid Kulik or Leonid Kulik first tried to, to, to get there, he discovered that nobody wanted to take him into that region because they believed that it was accursed and that, you know, it was part of their religious belief that this was off limits. They didn't go there. And and actually, let's see, at some point I remember I read somewhere I think that the first guides he hired they took him in there. They they they, they freaked out yeah. and left, and then uh, were eventually killed. Wow! When they for 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 such a, a transgression, mm -hmm. but but you can imagine what would a multiple Tunguska type event, and that's exactly right. what this this school of British neocatastrophism is invoking, which is that we might have periods of bombardment where there may be multiple Tunguska events happening simultaneously or over you know a short span of time. Um, which collectively would have extreme consequences for for those of us down here. Yeah, yeah, oh, interesting. So, so there, there's a link with the Pleiades right there. So yeah. if if people start talking about Pleiadians, you might want to say, well, maybe you should consider that aliens from Pleiades may actually be the debris of of this ancient giant comet, hmm. and that's that's prob and, and it certainly was the debris of a giant comet that probably no longer exists. A progenitor comet, of which Comet Anki and Comet Rudnicki are are remnants, hmm. but they're in that stream. And there are several asteroids, I think Oljato and several others that are also identified as being members of that family. That great stream of debris that Earth crosses twice each year, and that's exactly what I, those. You know, those markers are pointing out these these constellations that we're talking about here. Exactly. Well, you've, you've sold me. It's, it's, you've sold me. I, well, I, I, I want to look at yeah. it. I want to say. I want to I I present this at the at the uh, the paradigm symposium there. Well, I'll be a there a little bit, but yeah, I'll be right trip. in the front row heckling. What are you? Yeah. What are you going <laughs> to be presenting, Randall? Some of this uh, this stuff here from your current. I time? haven't made up my mind yet. I don't yeah. know. I'm just waiting to get a contract yet to see what. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I still don't. No, I was. Uh, 
you got a lot of content to sift through and decide what you're gonna what you're gonna yeah, do. Yeah, I, I, and of course it'd be a lot of visuals. So I got a, I got a quick question for you before we wrap up here. Okay, um, and thanks for joining us, David. Hey, yeah. Thank I you. I don't want to keep you guys. Up yeah, really, for, man. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. Yeah, me too. That was some. Some great stuff. I don't want to keep in. you up for too long here, but oh. just uh, just before, in case we don't get to do this on your way back uh, after your trip, I have a personal question for okay. you. Um, you being a, a Freemason and stuff, I was uh, I was interested. Isn't there a prerequisite of uh, of a, a belief in a supreme deity or a higher power? Well, and I wanted to know what your thought. The is. The thing is, is that the whole the whole system is predicated upon the universe as being a work of architecture. Right. Yeah. And so the way the ritualism is structured is it's it's almost like that's the that's the cornerstone of the whole thing, the belief that that there is an intelligence, an ultimate intelligence behind the whole thing. And in if you want to bring that into some kind of a coherent um you know, vision that you can actually grasp, you have to, you know, and bring it out of the realm of just pure abstraction. Yeah. You know, the the, the the metaphor that that they've used is the grand architect or the I mean the great architect or the grand geometrician, and and without that at least that premise as as part of your belief system, the rest of it really doesn't make sense. I mean that that's like the the the, the axiom upon which the whole system is is developed. So for your personal belief, it's kind of come, that's where the sacred geometry comes in in a way. Yeah, I mean yeah, because for me it was always. You know, as a young child, I, I I just instinctively believed that there was some kind of order to things and some kind of, you know. Then I kind of fell away from that, and then, of course, then I came back via the the route that many of us did back in the '60s, and became convinced that there was, in fact, something more than meets the eye, both to inner space, to the world around us, to outer space. Um, and then began to, you know, kind of go off on this journey, this quest for knowledge that took me, you know, all over the place and down many different belief systems. And, and you know, I, I was led into Freemasonry because I kept encountering it because as I was learning and developing my craft of building, I was very interested in the history of architecture. And I couldn't, you can't study the history of architecture without coming upon, stumbling upon this idea that there was this guild or this craft of initiates that, that, executed all of these great structures in 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 architectural history and then so i started looking into the freemasons and discovered that there was a lot of amazing history there and this was before the days of the internet and so what you'd had was sporadically you would have like fundamentalists of various stripes attacking freemasonry because of the fact of their essentially their 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 broad-mindedness they say well you know you, you it's it's non-denominational, non-sectarian. You basically just, as, if you profess a belief in a supreme creator, what, however you visualize that, that's the working premise, right? So you can be Christian, you can be Jew, you can be Muslim, you can be many kinds of religious beliefs. You probably can't be an atheist, because if your belief is that it's all just some random meaningless thing, then all the rest of it makes no sense, right? And so... Freemasons do not proselytize at all. They do not go out and try to convert people over to their belief system. In fact, it's just the opposite. They do not recruit at all. The way you become a Freemason is you as an individual have to act of your own volition. You have to make that positive step and go, you know, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? 
what's the first step? Well, usually the response then is, well, you've just taken the first step, which the first step is to is to ask the question. Knock at knock at the door. Knock at the door. And and you know, if you're sincere, there's a wealth of symbolism there, a wealth of knowledge encoded. And it's just sad and ridiculous to me. All of these conspiracy theories that have come up around Freemasonry, and, I, and I've looked into some of them, and, and, and they're, they're almost laughable. But it's tragic that here you have this fraternity that basically raises $2 million a year in, in private charities that go mostly to um, helping children, disadvantaged children of one way or another, who have health issues or, or disabled dis, you know, disabilities or homeless or some such thing as that. And then they have this heritage of symbolism that they have that they have preserved for centuries and centuries and centuries. And these people are going to make this judgment based upon some some idiosyncratic interpretation of history that Freemasons are somehow, you know, offshoots of the Illuminati and they're behind everything, pulling the strings. And it's and you know, it's laughable. It is really laughable. Um yeah, there have been lots of prominent Freemasons of, of many stripes, mm. you know, from many walks of life, you know. But the fact that there's some kind of concerted, organized Masonic conspiracy to control the world. And, and I know that saying this, the, 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 the true believers that have already made up their mind, you know, it's not going to sway them. They're, they're, they're set. They're dead set into this, fixated into this belief. Fine, I'm not trying to convince anybody of any it's the people who maybe heard a few things one way or another and don't know really what to believe. All I say is look into it for yourself. Do your own homework, do your own research into the history of the craft, and you'll see that what a what a what a valuable contribution they have made to, to human civilization on this planet. And what a rich, incredibly rich heritage that has been preserved by the craft. Um, and we've barely begun to tap that yet. I mean, it's 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 just like a treasure trove that, when it's opened, is just going to provide us with insight into the deep history of our own and, and spiritual history of our own uh, species on this planet. That's good. Thanks for answering that. I mean, I, I think people wanted to probably hear you talk about that. I don't think we talked about it much uh, on the show yet with you. So yeah, it's good to to hear that. Yeah, good. I feel like I. Because, you know, when I joined, I, there wasn't any of this. Um, the, the, the limited availability of information, you had to go to, you know, metaphysical bookstores. And, and a lot of the stuff had been written, you know, in the, in, the, in the turn of the century, late 19th century. And, you know, there was a, an anti-Masonic movement for a while. It was ma- mainly driven by fundamentalist, um, you know, ideas that, you know, because Freemasons were too tolerant of different points of view. Um but then that died down, and, and yeah, there have been, like one of the things I point out is I think there have been 14 American presidents. That, that's probably, that's what, that's what I was going to say. 14, that's, and the I last one was triggers. Gerald Ford. I, I, in the interview that I did on Guyam Television uh, last spring, I made that point. And, and then, you know, in these you know chat logs or whatever, comment, people were challenging. And so, oh, George Bush, you know, was a Freemason, which he certainly was not. George, let me, let's be clear. George Bush was not a Freemason, right? Um, the last Masonic president was, was Gerald Ford. And before him, it was Harry Truman. And before him, it was FDR. And, and there have been, like I said, 14 Masonic presidents. But I forget if it was 22 or 23 of the presidents have been Episcopalians. Wow. So really, 
I think we need to be looking at the Episcopalians. I agree. Who really are the puppet masters here. I've already been looking at them. Yeah. They're trouble. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. Do we have any Episcopalians in the... No, none of you guys? Okay. Right on. Well, thanks, guys. I don't want to keep uh, keep you up too much longer. Do you have anything else to say, Ed? Or, or well, just on? just uh, that I'm looking forward to this trip and spending a little time and getting to share some of my uh, findings with you, as well as find you know out these things from uh, your work and how this all ties in. And, and looking forward to that. Great. Yeah. So I we're we're going to spend the next whatever seven eight days. We're going to be exploring the the um, the. Um, the lakes and the, the the river valleys, and we're going to be looking at Drumlin Fields, all in the Cordilleran region, the central Cordilleran region, with the idea in mind that what we're doing is we're we're documenting evidence for the great meltdown nice. thirteen thousand years ago, which and trying to s- trace the source of these gigantic floods that we've been studying in Montana, Idaho, and Washington. To their source nice all right what's I causing them and yeah and i don't know if we're going to get there on this one but we're going to get closer to it you right know on. well it sounds like a good time yeah you yeah, got some great scenery and you got some good weather too you just missed yeah. all the storms so. so you guys are tagging along tomorrow yeah we're gonna go as far as revelstoke anyway and you know revelstoke one of the things we could do while we're in revelstoke we're gonna stop at the divide and and relieve ourselves. And relieve ourselves yeah. <laughs> so you go on one side, and it'll go to the Gulf of Mexico, and I'll go on the yeah, other side, and it'll go to the Pacific. Absolutely, yeah. Right. Oh, so Don't you cross. guys want to partake? We'll have a little ritual. What all, you, okay. What were you going to say about Rev, Revelstoke? Well, Revelstoke was the site of one of the great meteorite falls oh. of the 20th century, and I think there might be a museum there that oh. has some stuff. So we 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 could check that out and oh. stop and. See what we could learn. Nice. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's yeah, gonna be a time. To We're gonna, well, we'll see what else we come up with because we've got that little digital recorder. So we might just stash it in your guys's. Oh uh, no! In your SUV someplace <laughs> and see what we come up with. Well then, oh. Well, okay. <laughs> we did, do we have room for that little digital we, recorder in that SUV? Because <laughs> this thing could. We got stuff hanging off the back of that. I thing. think we better get a lady in the bunch so we behave ourselves. <laughs> ah, we'll be all right. Yeah. Because. Okay, well, okay. Well, actually, yeah. No. Well, I've never traveled with <laughs> right, we have so I don't know what I'm in for yet. <laughs> right on. Well, that's about it, I guess. Hey, Darren, what do you think? Yeah. Put these yeah, guys to bed. Uh, is it bedtime? It's almost 1230. Oh, yeah. bedtime. That's a good note to, to end it on. Would, we can all squeeze into the house and and shut her down. Um, yeah, thanks to everyone for tuning in. We, we ended up going over two hours anyway. No, after I... <laughs> Stayed emphatically. I wasn't going to do that. Yeah. Oh, did you? <laughs> well, I wasn't too emphatic, but yeah. Well, right on. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks okay. a bunch. Thanks, Thank you guys Dan. for having us and your yeah. hospitality. We really yeah, appreciate no, no seeing kidding. you guys, and yeah, you guys, we really appreciate that. Yeah, Anytime. I want everybody to know that they, these guys are putting us up. Yes, um, we had a, some great burgers earlier. Bill did some fishing. Beautiful um, place here in the lake. Had a comfortable bed. They're putting me up in. Nice. For sleep, so hey. Well, we'll be down to Georgia so eventually. Oh, yeah, maybe. I better do some housekeeping. Right. You're <laughs> welcome. It's good to have you guys here. Yeah, thanks. Anytime. Thanks Absolutely. again, guys. We'll see you at Paradigm.
Okay, that was our chat with uh, Ronald Carlson at Nightingale. Um, big thanks to Davin for coming all the way up from Lethbridge and uh, joining us for the interview. Um, yeah, he drove two hours home. I don't think he got home till around four in the morning. Um, so yeah, thanks for tuning in. Graham and I tagged along uh, with Randall and Ed. Um, who else was there? Randall, Ed, Bill, Brian, George, Brad, myself and Graham. We all went to Revelstoke. Um, we had a good time out there. And um, yeah, I suppose that's uh, about it. Um, we're hoping to hook back up. Those guys are still wandering around BC. Uh, we're hoping to hook back up with them uh, possibly Saturday afternoon, maybe for a quick podcast. Um, until then, make sure to tune in this Wednesday, coming up Wednesday at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. We will be broadcasting our backstage feed of our chat with Duncan Trussell. And yeah, that should be a good one. Other than that, support the show, grabamerica.ca slash support. Help us uh, stay ad and sponsor affiliate free all that jazz if you can't uh, help us out with some some cash maybe you can uh, head over to grimerica.ca slash itunes and leave us a review or you know maybe you can just tell some friends uh, about the show on that note thanks for listening to this special in studio episode with uh, randall ed uh, myself graham and david and we will uh, see you guys next week
Thank you.